more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. Listeners, it is December 1st, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Daniel Watkins. And I'm Chelsea Beheimer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we're joined by Meredith Jacobson from the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society. Hi, Meredith. Hello. So we are very excited about tonight's discussion because the work that you do unites a lot of very different people and has a lot of very interesting complexity in it. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure, yeah, and thanks for having me on the show tonight. Um, So I study collaboration as a form of governance of forest lands, and specifically I'm interested in the equity and social justice um, dimensions to forest governance and specifically collaborative forest governance. And my project is related to a concept um, known as anchor forests, which was developed by the Intertribal Timber Council and is a concept in which tribes would bring together surrounding landowners and uh, work together to come up with collaborative management approaches across these um, ownership boundaries, really centering around this uh, tribal forest land with the tribe as the leader in the collaboration. And so I'm looking at what this concept means and how it could be used as a form of, of forest governance. Wow. Well, that's kind of, that's a lot. <laughs> um, I think one of the things when we first talked to you that came across it, that I, I didn't understand initially that I think listeners might miss is that this is right now, it's just a concept, right? There aren't any anchor forests that are working at the moment, but there is lots of hope. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So this vision has been around for a long time, as I've learned through talking to people involved, but they developed a pilot project study just a few years ago with some communities in Washington. And that project or pilot project was released in 2016. And so it's still in this conceptual phase of um, what it would look like to create these large regions of, of cross-boundary land stewardship. And um, it hasn't fully been implemented in the way that the 
Intertribal Timber Council has been interested in putting it forward, but the concept has been used to generate some momentum around working cross-boundary on, on forest lands and with tribes, um, but there's a lot of opportunity to, to use it more in the future. Could you tell us a little bit about what some of this vocabulary means? Like, uh, to start with, what is the Intertribal Timber Council? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. The Intertribal Timber Council is this umbrella organization uh, comprised of different uh, tribal forest and resource departments. And it's an organization that emerged as tribes were um, needing to work more on the stewardship of their forest lands as a lot of tribes regained ownership and control and access over their ancestral forest lands that they had uh, been removed from in the past. And so the Intertribal Timber Council is this organization that generates support and builds capacity for tribes to conduct sustainable forest management on their lands. Wow. And how did you, um, for, so you're working directly with the Intertribal Timber Council. So how did you connect with, with them and get interested in learning more about this anchor forest concept? Yeah, so I feel really lucky to have met a couple of people who are in the leadership of the Intertribal Timber Council, and it kind of happened through happenstance. I had a connection with my one of my advisors, Dr. Emily Jane Davis, who's an extension specialist, and she had a connection to someone uh, working for the Forest Service in New Mexico who has been involved in Anchor Forests. And he and I got to talk on the phone, and he then introduced me to several other people involved in, in the Intertribal Timber Council and in the Anchor Forest idea. And actually, last last winter or spring, the College of Forestry had the Starker Lecture Series, which brought together um, speakers to campus, and it was all about tribal forestry. And there was a speaker, um, Don Motanic, from the Intertribal Timber Council, who was here. And I also spoke with him about the concept, and, and so through some conversation with those individuals, I developed my research questions and have been working with them to find a project that can help push this vision forward in ways that they're interested in doing. Now, in developing these research questions, you had to be pretty creative. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you've approached getting information about anchor forests? Sure. Yeah. So I, like I mentioned, I came to OSU to study collaborative governance. I work with two social scientists in the College of Forestry, really didn't know anything about social science coming in, and um, have learned about a variety of methods and especially about qualitative methodologies, which I think are not always commonly known or associated with with science or people who are who think about what is a scientist. But I developed a, a qualitative approach to collecting data for this project. I am viewing the anchor forest concept as a case study, which means I'm thinking about this concept and I'm diving deeply into what this idea means as a case rather than a scientific study that would be trying to kind of generalize over a large data set. I'm looking very closely and deeply at this one concept and where it emerged from, why it emerged, and what it could be used for, how different individuals involved in it see it. And so I'm in order to answer those types of research questions, qualitative approaches are really necessary. And so that for me has involved interviewing people who are involved in the anchor forest concept from the Intertribal Timber Council, and also looking at 
some of the documents and media associated with Anchor Forests, as well as some associated media um, about tribal forest policy. And I'm really trying to look closely at what those documents and interviews say and look at the narratives within those documents to really try to understand um, what this concept means. So have you interviewed people um, just within the Intertribal Timber Council or directly connected with Anchor Forest? Yeah, so I started with a few of the people that I knew were closely involved, mm-hmm. and there aren't very many people involved, mm-hmm. which has made my my sampling <laughs> strategy or data collection a little bit easier because I've really exhausted the number of people that mm-hmm. worked closely on it. But I also conducted what qualitative researchers I refer to as a snowball sample. Mm -hmm. So I asked each person that I interviewed if they could recommend additional people for me to interview. And so I grew my list of people by a few people that way. But yeah, I ended up with with 10 interviews. And what kind of things do you discuss in a typical interview? Yeah, so we, I would start by asking what their involvement was in, in the Anchor Forest concept or the project. And then we'd go into what were the motivations for developing this concept, what they see as being unique about it um, as compared to other forms of collaboration, and also what they see as the barriers that have stopped it from being fully implemented, and kind of what are some of the contextual factors that might make this concept different depending on the region or which tribe you're working with or something like that. And then we'd kind of end on where they think the concept is going in the future, what opportunities there are to use it in the future, and what yeah what needs to be done to accomplish the vision. So I actually met Meredith in a social science methods class, <laughs> and um, one of the things I remember learning about as a person who was not like yourself, not as familiar with social science methods, is that it's not always hypothesis driven. It's often really exploratory. So I'm curious, when you went into developing these interviews, did you have any expectations for what you would hear if you would hear similar things? Or were you just going into it just totally open? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the things that we try to emphasize as qualitative researchers is that we all come in with our own biases mm. and we <laughs> embrace that rather rather than pretending that it doesn't exist <laughs> because that, that goes into what our ultimate analyses and conclusions are. It has to do with who we are as a researcher. We're co-generating knowledge with the people that we're interviewing. And so when I came into this project, I definitely had ideas. I definitely felt like I wanted to use this project as a way to support the Anchor Forest concept or, or help push it forward. So that's an inherent bias that I have. I think that we should be shifting leadership to tribes in, in forest management whenever possible. And so I came in because I had had these conversations with some of the leaders involved ahead of time. I kind of thought of those as my key informants who were helping me understand where my research should be going. I definitely had some ideas of, of what would come out of it. Mm-hmm. And I did write that into my proposal. One of the sections that my advisor asked me to write in the proposal was, what are, what are your expected conclusions or what might you expect your thesis to look like at the end of this? And so that's something that I considered, but I do see this as an exploratory project where it's taken all kinds of crazy <laughs> directions since starting. And there are there are things that uh, are fulfilling my expectations, and there are things that have surprised me that have come up in the data collection process. 
I'd be interested to hear a bit more about the way that a tribe could unite other interested parties in the management of a forest. So maybe just picking one forest and one group as an example, could you talk us through how the tribe would uh, help manage the forest or take over the management of a forest? Right, yeah. So that's a great question, and I think a lot of those logistics are still uncertain, and it really does depend on the context, and that's something that I'll just take the time to emphasize now that I'm speaking about this concept broadly as applying to tribes in general, but one thing that's that's really often overlooked is how different every single tribe is in terms of their history, their culture, their values, and their relationships to surrounding lands, their capacity to enact forest management. And so I think that's something that especially non-Native people tend to not think about and they lump all tribes together. Um, so it really does depend on the context and that's something that I'm working into my analysis. But the anchor forest concept, one of the pilot communities that they looked at in Washington was the Yakima Nation and the surrounding land ownerships, which are mainly forest service and private lands. This is up in kind of central eastern Washington. And the Yakima Nation has a really robust forestry and timber harvesting program. They have a sawmill that is one of the last remaining sawmills in the area. And so actually the Forest Service and other surrounding lands can really have come to rely on, on the tribe's sawmill to process some of their timber coming off of those lands. And so there are a variety of political or legal institutional mechanisms that allow tribes to work cross-boundary with surrounding landowners like the Forest Service. And there are funding opportunities for tribes to enact kind of joint management prescriptions with the Forest Service or even enact management on Forest Service land, on their ancestral land that, that falls under Forest Service jurisdiction currently. Um, and so there's a lot of these different kind of smaller project-based mechanism, mechanisms that would allow this work to happen cross-boundary, and especially in eastern Washington or really across the, the west and here in Oregon, east of the Cascades. The issue of wildfires is the big motivation for working cross-boundary because fires don't recognize property lines. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're blazing through, and so management on one side of the property line affects management on the other side. So there's a lot of mechanisms to make it happen, but what I'm finding is unique about the anchor forest concept is it's meant to be this overarching vision that unites all these smaller piecemeal projects to really put it together on a on a landscape scale. But I think the the mechanics of of really shifting power and leadership to tribes is still a work in progress. There's a lot of issues with the Forest Service not being able to let go of their mm their control in in the forest management or forest governance processes. Um, and so that's something that I'm interested in exploring further in the future, but maybe not in this project. Got it. I think something you said um, just about how fires don't necessarily recognize the arbitrary you know, property lines that we draw, but the management strategies can um, 
can affect, you know, how those fires or other cons- natural concerns um, manifest. And um, if you go to our blog, uh, Inspiration Dissemination, um, there's a photo that Meredith shared with us, and it it really has, it's a dramatic visual that shows you, this was in the Sierra Nevada, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of shows a difference in after a fire has gone through an area, the management approaches. So I think for, for listeners um, who are, visual people and kind of getting an idea of, of what that means and um, what that looks like. Um, definitely check out our blog. And Meredith helped me a lot uh, write this because her work is so complex. And I, I have to add, Meredith is a master's student. Um, so she's very well spoken <laughs> and has gone really deep into this into this topic. And um, you're intending to finish in June. Is that is that right? That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and do you feel like you'll be you'll be finished with with your work at that point? Well, I'll be finished with something <laughs> by June, but definitely not finished with the work, generally speaking. And so, yeah, I have a I have a commitment to being done with my program in June, and one of the most important commitments I have is to return something some kind of useful product back to my research partners, back to the Intertribal Timber Council, because I've taken their time, they've shared their knowledge with me. And so the point is really to to give something useful back to them. Um, I'll also have my own thesis to finish, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I think that through this process, I have unearthed a lot more questions than I've I'm remotely close to answering. And that's been a big motivation for me to want to continue into a PhD program because I, yeah, as soon as you start peeling the layers off of, of a concept like this, there's so much more to go into. So how did you get to the point of wanting to do a master's degree in the first place? Yeah, so I took four years off after undergrad. I studied forestry for my undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley. And afterwards, I worked for a couple of years for the California Department of Forestry, kind of in the throes of, of public land management and what that really looks like on the ground. And especially working for a, a really wildfire-dominated agency, that was a, a pretty motivating experience for me. And then I also worked for a couple of years doing environmental education with kids. So. Mm-hmm. Very different experiences, and one of the things that has also been an undercurrent both in undergrad and, and after college was getting more involved in, in social justice work. I was also working summers after college for UC Berkeley's forestry field camp, and that's a field camp in the Sierra Nevada for undergrads to learn about forestry. And there were a lot of conversations in that program about the failure of the forestry curriculum there to really adequately address indigenous history and to center indigenous history and experiences on the land. And so all of that kind of was combining and I was feeling like I really had this sense of accountability as as a non-native person going into the field of public land management to address these legacies of historic injustice and also kind of trying to weave in my interests of community engagement and social justice with forestry. And so I started to think about grad school as an opportunity to really merge all of those 
parts of me into one experience, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was lucky enough to find two really wonderful advisors, Reem Hajar and Emily Jane Davis here at, at OSU, who I think while their disciplinary expertise is um, related to what I'm doing, but not exactly, they have really inspired me to want to become a social scientist and do work like them. So, yeah. That's awesome. And I know that this is sometimes what we've learned in the process of um, even talking to you about your work is it is a hard thing to communicate about specifically as a person who is non-native and you're the only person doing this kind of work here and there's not, you know, a whole a whole lot of support for you. So what are what are some of the ways that you kind of overcome? Uh, I guess that's more than one challenge all wrapped up in one project. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll also say that while I'm the only person at OSU studying anchor forests, there are several amazing native scholars in the College of Forestry, and I'm I'm learning from the people that are in this community. But yeah, I do feel like in some ways there's not a lot of work in OSU and specifically in the College of Forestry to try to address these topics. And so I think what I've learned is that um, this kind of research really needs to be founded on relationships Mm -hmm. with partners. And like I said, I've, I've been really grateful to have met some incredible land managers, scholars, people who are doing this work on the ground who have shared their time and perspective with me. And I think there have just been along the way some some leaps of faith where I there were times when actually there were times when people did I had a few professors kind of try to discourage me from diving into something this complicated as a master's student in the two year program. <laughs> but then I had some conversations with these partners with the Intertribal Timber Council that really affirmed that while I can't do everything and shouldn't try. I can kind of bite off a piece of it that I can address in my time here and um, have really just been trying to put myself out there and and talk to as many people as possible and be open to sometimes making mistakes. But um, yeah, it really has shown me the power, I guess, of, of relationships. And another motivating factor for wanting to go into a PhD is just that it does take a lot of time to build trust for these kinds of things. And so I have built some relationships, but in a lot of ways would like to have the time to go a lot deeper and really spend time with communities that I'm working with and generate trust over time. And that's something that takes years to to really build. How has your experience in in, uh, working with the Forest Service for many years compare with the kind of things that you've learned with these uh, discussions with the Intertribal Council. Yeah, yeah. So I, I worked for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, CAL FIRE, which is oh, slightly right. different okay, than yes, the Forest very, Service, but yeah. similar in that it's a large beast of an agency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think a lot of the lessons that I learned working for CAL FIRE do cross over, and there's a lot of kind of themes that keep coming up over and over again. And I would say that in a lot of ways having that grounding experience of kind of working on the ground, marking timber, uh, helping with restoration projects on the forest and, and interacting with 
all kinds of people, logging contractors and, and recreators in the forest, that kind of thing has really lent me some, a little bit more of like a ground to stand on or foundation mm -hmm. to stand on when I'm talking to people in the forestry field. I think it gives me a little bit more respect or street cred, if you want to call <laughs> sure, it, yeah. um, when important. talking to foresters. Uh, because forestry really is a discipline that it really does have this like boots on the ground kind of mentality. It's it's about change on the landscape in the end. It's about what happens actually out in the physical world in the forest. And so I think that has helped me has helped me be able to communicate better with people who are uh, forest managers, with the Forest Service, with tribal forest managers. Um, but there's also a lot that I've learned since starting this project that I was not exposed to, I guess, when I was working for Cal Fire, just in terms of these questions of, of governance and these large-scale issues related to working cross-boundary, working across landscapes. Um, I definitely didn't have very much familiarity with working with tribal partners in the past and was not thinking much about how equity and social justice come into forestry. It was kind of more like going out to mark some timber, going out to dig some ditches in the forest. Um, so it's been interesting to see how kind of the theory world and the physical world of forests mm. can come together. Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing how you have taken that experience and you really have built a relationship in such a short amount of time with the Intertribal Timber Council. And I think you said to us when we met with you before that you're presenting your findings so far to them this coming week. Is that right? So yeah. what will you what will you be sharing with them? That's a great question. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm presenting at the Intertribal Timber Council board meeting on mm -hmm. Tuesday. They have a, a session on research projects that are relevant to the organization. I'm nervous about it because I have not really communicated back any findings yet to them. They were kind of gave me some feedback as I was developing my project, but now I've kind of gone away, done my interviews, I've been on my computer doing my analysis. And so this is kind of the first time I'm coming back and saying, here's some of the things that I've been finding. And so really I'm just looking for feedback at this meeting, but it will be definitely interesting to see what kind of feedback they have. And yeah, in the end, I want to make sure that what I'm coming away with aligns with with what they see as important for Anchor Forest because if not, what is this project for? It's, it's for figuring out, you know, where, where they want to go with, with the concept. And so it should be a, a fruitful <laughs> meeting, or I hope it is on Tuesday. Can you share with us maybe one, one of your findings that you'll be um, talking to them about, or is that maybe... You're going to save it for the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can give you a little bit of a teaser awesome. of, of what that is. Um, come to my defense in June and you can find out more. But awesome. I, yeah, I will. I think one of the things I'll be talking about is that across these 10 people that I've talked to, who many of which are very closely involved with the Anchor Forest Project, there has been a lot of variation on what people have shared with me when I've asked them what is unique about the Anchor Forest concept. And while a lot of them kind of come to the same ideas in the end, I've been looking at what people start off by saying, which is kind of their gut reaction to that question. And some people have focused more on its uniqueness in terms of working across large landscapes, like a big spatial scale of bringing together a lot of landowners. 
And some other people have more focused on the time scale of saying this is going to be a long-term commitment with, you know, um, economic investments to make it happen over time. And then some people have focused on, on the tribal leadership component of it more heavily than others. And so I think what I'm coming away from that with is that that really highlights how important context is. Because even though all of these different people I'm talking to have been involved in anchor forests, they all work for different um, tribes or for the Forest Service or for states. They're in different regions. And so one thing that I'm hoping to explore a little bit further is, is how does this vision that's very broad, how does it adapt to these different contexts, depending on you know whether a tribe has a large land base or sawmill infrastructure or whether wildfire is a big problem or timber is a big problem. So um, I'm interested to see, yeah, where that conversation goes. That's really interesting because that goes back to what you said before about how, you know, we kind of assume that all tribes have the same values, but even within, you said you've spoken to 10 people, they have such, you know, different ideas of, of what's, um, what the anchor forest concept is all about or the main goals. So that's really interesting. Right. Which definitely makes analysis a challenge <laughs> when sure. there's so much yeah. variation, but yeah. it's also what makes it interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me. We have a couple traditions that we like to end our shows with. Uh, The first is we like to ask our uh, guests for a bit of advice. Mm -hmm. And so first, who is your advice directed to? Okay, well, I I would like to give two different pieces of advice to two different audiences. (laughs) So first, I wanted to give advice to anybody really considering grad school. And that advice would be, um, and I wish someone had told me this when I was an undergrad, which is that you don't have to pay for grad school if you can find a funded program. There's so many funded programs out there. There are topics where you will have to pay, but um, I definitely have been lucky to have found funding. But um, it's just important to know that you can find a funded program if it's something you're interested in. You don't have to go into debt to do work like this. Absolutely. Um, And then the second piece of advice I just wanted to give generally to anyone else who is maybe a non-native person or a white person, a fellow white person who's interested in engaging with these kinds of topics, which are sensitive and identity-based and have a lot to do with how we carry different privileges in the world. And so one thing that I've learned that I kind of wish I had learned earlier on was just the need to become comfortable with being uncomfortable in this work. And I think a lot of times white people tend to kind of get in an echo chamber of talking to fellow progressive people who share their views um, without actually, you know, going out there, putting yourself out there. And um, so I would just say, like, the advice would be put yourself out there and don't be so afraid of speaking incorrectly that you don't speak at all uh, with people about these topics and just be okay with getting uncomfortable, being called out, um, taking that with humility and, and learning from your mistakes. And, and that's how we grow. Awesome. That is awesome advice. Thank you so much for sharing that and your work. Um, so the second tradition is a little bit of a, a lighter note. Uh, we ask you to share a song with us that we're, we'll play you out on. Um, but this song, not just the song, this artist is very special to you at this stage in your life. Is that right? Can you 
tell us the artist and then the song and why it's important. Right. So <laughs> I chose a Lucius song and I'm hoping a couple of people listening to this show yeah. know why that's important. <laughs> but yeah, so when I got to grad school, I've made some really great friends here, including two office mates and a housemate who we all discovered we share a love of this band, Lucius, that not very many people know about. I know. And uh, yeah, Chelsea knows, which is, means she's cool. And so we jokingly decided to start a Lucius cover band, and it kind of turned from a joke to being a real thing. And so we've played at farmer's markets and covered Lucia's songs and that's been one of the ways that I've stayed sane during grad school so um this goes out to Luscious my Lucia's cover band (laughs) that's amazing well one day maybe you'll come back on the show and actually play for us one of your covers but in the meantime this is Dusty Trails by Lucia's thanks again Meredith for coming on the show thank you for having me We've been gone for such a long time that I'm almost afraid to go home. A long road is a long, dragged out imagination where things can go wrong. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline, and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamath. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow this show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Holbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.